Dave Wurtson pastored long enough to get to know both believers and unbelievers in Midlothian, Texas, just 30 miles from Dallas. Let's join him as he introduces our study, An Unbeliever's Response to Church, by praying for the freedom in all our lives to communicate the truth about Jesus to those seekers drawn to our churches every week. In our own church family, we often talk about the church gathered together to be what? Gathered together to be strengthened. And then we talk about scattering out in order to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. And I think that that's the dominant stress of the New Testament. It's why we have four gospels, which are the gospels, the proclamation of the good news. And then we have all the epistles, which give us a lot of teaching. But I think in my own thinking that I often can tend to think of Sunday morning as being a place where an unbelieving person might not be able to get that much out of it. Because the idea of the church is that we're to gather together to build up unbelievers. We go out into the unbelieving world to reach them for Christ. But the passage today convicted me because I think the Word of God often does take some of these neat principles and generalizations that we come up with. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 14... In verses 20 and following, the Apostle Paul talks not about the influence of a church gathering upon believers, but it talks about the influence of a church gathering upon unbelievers. And it talks about a group of people who are called inquirers. In fact, the Greek word stresses that they're coming for information. They'd like to get to know some things about God's family. And it also talks about a group of people that have not yet come to know Christ. And the issue that's raised in verses 20 through the end of the chapter is how does our gathering together of believers, specifically in 1 Corinthians 14, how did the gathering together of the Corinthian church affect the way that an unbeliever felt about Christ? And I think that it's very possible that an unbeliever is being moved on by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is drawing them to himself and they have some questions. For example, maybe just recently one of their loved ones passed away. And they had to go through that experience of trying to bring comfort to a family. And it's caused them to begin to ask some questions. What about eternal life? What about some of the things that I might have heard on the radio or on TV about this man called Jesus? How do I know whether or not Jesus is truly the Son of God? And I think that's a question that not only an unbeliever can ask, but I think we can ask it from time to time. I think some of our young people need to go through a time, and I think many of them have when they ask the question, how do you know whether all this stuff we talk about on Sunday morning is true? And so Sunday morning needs to be a place. When we get into chapter 15, we'll have some very strong answers to those questions. How do we know that it is true? How do we know that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God? Why should we worship Jesus and not Buddha or someone like that? So I think there are a whole group of unbelievers that are asking questions along those lines. How do I know that these things concerning Jesus are true? I think also we can have a a group of unbelievers who their kids are children and maybe moving up and a little bit older, and they realize we need to give them some strong ethical moral training, and we need to give them a strong religious heritage. And maybe some of them uh, didn't have, some of the parents didn't have that when they were kids. Some of them had it when they were kids. When they went away from college, they followed a very normal pattern. They kind of got all caught up in college and career and and trying to get going in life. So they kind of wandered away from the steady 
weekly time with a group of believers. So as their kids grow up, they begin to sense a real vacuum. So they want to come out and share with a group of believers, and they have a lot of questions. The question that Paul asks us as we think about this coming together of unbelievers with believers, how is the unbeliever going to feel? I think it's a question that should spin our wheels greatly. In fact, I think it's the question that should spin our wheels not just Sunday morning, but throughout our entire life. And I think we as a church family should be willing to grow, should be willing to change, should be willing to come up with new ideas in order to reach out to unbelievers. There's a church in the suburbs of Chicago that started out with that specific philosophy that we need to be able to create an environment where unbelievers can come and question and can have a free atmosphere where they can raise some of the issues they would like to raise so that we can share in an open communication the wonder of the gospel and what Christ has done. And the Lord has blessed that church family mightily. Well, the same Holy Spirit that worked in the suburbs of Illinois has been working in our own group, and I want us to believe that we're just beginning to see some of the creative things that the Holy Spirit wants to do through our group in reaching out to unbelievers. So the subject of Paul's discussion in chapter 14, 20 and following is, how does the gathering together of believers affect unbelievers? What do unbelievers conclude about this gathering together? Let's begin with verse 20. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. The Apostle Paul often has this idea in mind that he wants us to be innocent as a child concerning evil. In other words, he wants us to not experience evil. He doesn't want us to learn in the school of hard knocks. And it reminds us of similar ideas that we study together in the book of Proverbs. The idea that as we go through life, we will learn by experience. We will live and learn, which is the hard way to learn. The Apostle Paul wants us to think about another way to learn, which we talked a lot about when we studied Proverbs, and that is to learn to live. And that's what we want to do very much when we talk about the realities of what life choices will bring. If I make this choice, what, what will it bring? What will happen in my life a couple years from now or five years from now? The Lord wants us to be wise concerning Satan's techniques, but innocent concerning evil. Do you understand that difference? He wants us to send ourselves out into the world, not naive about the world, not thinking, oh, all the goodies are out there. But he doesn't want us to learn in the school of experience. He wants us to be pure. He wants us to be innocent concerning evil. But in our thinking, he wants us to be mature. Now, he applies it specifically in this context to the Corinthians' childish um, concentration on this big spiritual high. The nature of, of children is that they enjoy real big highs of enthusiasm. And the Corinthians had done this in their gathering together to worship. They had one gigantic individual, a multiplication of individuals that were getting high. And they thought that was the epitome of spirituality. And the Apostle Paul says, no, that's not. In fact, it's childish because you're all concentrating on yourselves and you're not thinking about how it influences an unbeliever that might have come to inquire about the Lord. 
So he goes back to the Old Testament and he gives us a, a series of reasoning that we almost have to be adults. And I think all of you can handle it. I'm sure you can. But Paul's reasoning in the next few verses is a little bit hard to follow. In fact, I'm still scratching my head over these verses. So we're going to go at it again. And I scratched my head when I was in seminary pondering it. And we're going to do that again. So sit tight. He goes back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 28, verses 11 through 12. He says, In the law it is written, Through the men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. This people in Isaiah would be who? The children of Israel. Through a, the men, through the tongue of, stra of strangers, through the lips of foreigners, God says, I will speak to this people, the kingdom of Israel. And even then, they will not listen to me. Now, if God says that even then, they will not listen to me, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? If God were to come to you and say, I'm going to speak to you through the lips of a foreigner. And in this particular case, what he said to the northern kingdom of Israel through the prophet Isaiah, I'm going to bring the Assyrians down. And the Assyrians are going to attack the kingdom of Israel. And the Assyrian language was very different from the Hebrew language that the children of Israel spoke. And so these foreign invaders would come in and they would take captive the nation of Israel, take the ten tribes into captivity. And God is saying that in some special way, that would be the voice of God. But what kind of a voice was it? It was not a voice of mercy. It was not a voice of kindness. It was a voice of judgment. You see, the point of the Isaiah passage is not that you have a very kind, grandfatherly figure who's saying, I know you're bad kids, and I know that you have kind of a hard heart, but, you know, here's, a, here's another, some more money, and you can go out and buy some more candy. In this particular context, you have a different image of God that's very strong. It's an image, image of God that we don't talk about too much, but I think it's very important to recognize it. What Isaiah is saying is that there can come a time when we resist the voice of God, we resist the quiet voice, and we don't listen, our ears are closed, and our hearts become hard, there can come a time when God no longer speaks in a language we can understand. In Isaiah, we have a passage of judgment for unbelieving people who will not listen to the voice of God. And that's why Paul goes on to say that tongues then are a sign. A sign from God. Not for believers, not for those who are inquiring about the truth. Not for those who want to hear and who, who, are, who maybe haven't come to Christ completely yet, but they're on the way. They're listening. They're getting more answers. And they're moving towards that moment when their hearts will open up. Tongues then are, are for a sign. This speaking in foreign language Languages are for a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for the unbelievers. So what Paul is telling them is that the Corinthians, who are all excited about this ability to speak, whether it's a heavenly language or an earthly language, is immaterial for our present discussion. What Paul is saying is, when you gather together as a group of Corinthians in the first century, 
And a whole lot of you begin to speak in a language that no one can understand except maybe one interpreter. And you're going on and on and speaking a foreign language and you're all excited about it because you think you're so near to God. You think that God is so much a part of your life which in one sense is true because it was a legitimate gift in the first century, definitely. But Paul is saying that what God is really saying through you is not a message of mercy, not a message of forgiveness, but a message of judgment because the unbelievers that might have come to ask some questions and to listen and to get some answers to life issues are not getting those answers. So this unintelligible word like the word in Isaiah, like the word of the parables to Jesus. A very similar illustration of this is in the Lord Jesus speaking in parables. Have you ever read in the gospel, it says Jesus no longer spoke to them just in a discourse, just in a narrative, or just in straight exposition, but he talked to them in parables. And he says, I speak to you in parables because you have ears, but you don't hear. In other words, you're not receiving the message. And there came a point in Jesus' ministry where he switched from just speaking straight to the people and just giving them a clear presentation of repent for the kingdom of God. And he started telling them stories that are very difficult in some ways to understand. Not impossible, but not easy. Now, why does Jesus do that? Because when you begin to work with a, with a hardened heart, Sometimes stories get through when straight discussion will not. But as you move down that pike, as you move down away from receptive hearing to just boredom, I don't care what's going on, as you move a little bit farther to mocking, that I'm mocking what's going on, you move a little bit farther and your heart is really hardened, what the Isaiah passage said that after years and years of God speaking, there came a point when he no longer would speak in an intelligible language. And his application to the Corinthian situation was the gift of tongues was a sign not of God's mercy to believers, to those that would come into the truth, but of judgment for those who had hardened their hearts. Let's go on and develop that thought a little bit further because there's another gift that does just the opposite. It says in verse 23, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in this unintelligible language, this gift of tongues, and some who do not understand, in other words, they don't understand what you're saying, or some unbelievers come in, and Paul would imply that there will be some unbelievers that will come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? As they hear all these believers speaking in these unintelligible languages, they're going to throw up their hands and say, man, these guys are crazy. Now, in my own life, I've been in situations where I've had unbelievers tell exactly that. In other words, they've come to a gathering of, of believers, and some of the believers get really carried away. And sometimes I've seen believers, you know, they'll grab someone by the head and they'll shake them, and then a person will just fall flat on the floor, and they're kind of out in a trance. And I've been with unbelievers who have said to me, Dave, what in the world's going on here? What's happening here? Are the, and then they'll add this phrase, are these people out of their minds? And I think it's very interesting. That's exactly what Paul was saying. And I think that all of us in our lives, though we might not go to that extreme, we need to ask ourselves, 
How do we come across to an unbeliever? How does my life appear to an unbeliever? Now, sometimes you're going to be accused of being a fanatic. Paul was accused of that, or we might be accused of being fools for Christ. But if we're accused of being mad for Christ, let's be sure that it's really the madness of the cross and not our own madness and our own weird behavior. You know what I'm talking about? Or our own obnoxiousness. And that's what the Apostle Paul is working with the Corinthians on. He says, when you gather together, I want there to be an atmosphere that will be very open to unbelievers, that will create an atmosphere where the unbelievers' hearts can be exposed, that you can get down and really talk about life issues and not have them think that you're mad. Instead, because God's presence is so powerfully there in explaining the teaching of his word, that the hearts will be exposed and people will be brought into God's kingdom. He says in verse 24, But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in, while everybody is prophesying, and that is speaking a word of God in an intelligible language, will they not be convinced by all that he is a sinner? And will they not be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare, so he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now those verses are very convicting. In other words, Paul envisioned the gathering together of the Corinthians that God's presence would be so mighty in the gathering together of believers that the message from God would lay hearts open. I want you to think for a minute. Do you remember the last time that as you were listening to the voice of God, and we can hear that voice in every word of Scripture, that you just felt, you just felt that the message was prepared directly for you. Do you remember that? You know, something that really scares me as, as, a, as a pastor is a lot of times someone will come up because you all are so gracious. A lot of times you're sharing. You share, you know, what the Lord does in your heart and what the Lord meant. And you'll share maybe in a note or share in a telephone conversation and say, how did you know that was going on in my life? And I have scratched my head and said, man, I didn't have the foggiest idea what was going on in your life. I had some kids come up to me this week as we studied the book of Proverbs, and these kids say, you know, how did you know what was going on when I was 15 in my house? And I didn't know. I didn't know. But God does know. God knows what's going on in my own heart. And I, it's something I think that we can band together and pray for. Because I can't do it, and you can't do it, only God can do it. But we need to pray that the Lord will create the kind of a situation that when we're banded together, when we come together, that the presence of God will be so mighty in our midst that as we have the prophetic message which we receive through the pages of every word of Scripture, Hearts will be laid open. Hearts will be unmasked. And those hearts, as they're exposed before the truth of God, will respond in worship. There's a beautiful, you know, progression here. We have an unbeliever who comes because they want to know the truth. They want to hear about reality. Don't think about all unbelievers as caring less about Jesus, not wanting to know anything about him, 
There's a whole lot of unbelievers that have just never had anybody talk straight about him. A lot of them have been wounded by false religion. A lot of unbelievers just don't know. And you can invite them to come, and you can talk with them at work. And then we can all pray together that as they hear the truth of God's word, their heart will start to be uncovered. And there will start to be a deep integrity in their life. And as the Lord exposes what's really going on in their heart, they'll be moved to ask for forgiveness in what Jesus has done. And they'll be born into God's family, and then they can worship God. You know, one of the things that I think we need to pray about is that I think it's easy to fall into a pattern, to fall in the pattern of normalcy. And we know what's expected. And instead of really praying and expecting great things from God, we just kind of go along with the same pattern. That can happen in my life. It can happen in your life. And it's this openness to the work of God, the openness to the prophetic message. I'm not sure that, that we're really hearing. I'm not sure that we're really hearing with our ears and applying it in our hearts and in our lives. In other words, that we have objective truth, but it doesn't reach very deep into our being. And rather than saying, oh, you know, I'm troubled about that or I'm very negative about that, I think that that reality needs to touch our hearts and we need to really pray and talk to God. I think that it would be incredible to see what would happen if we were praying all during the week. Lord, we want your presence to be powerfully among us when we gather together, whenever that might be, that we're fervently praying. We want the presence of God to be so real among us and the exposure of his word so penetrating that unbelievers' hearts will be opened and they'll be moved to respond. And that is something we can all pray for in all of our churches. Imagine what could happen if all of us prayed fervently during the week that the Lord Jesus would powerfully anoint our pastor as he proclaims the gospel and teaches us the Sunday morning. If we prayed that, the Spirit would move in awesome power to convince us of sin, to move us to obey what we learn, and to powerfully draw any believers that meet with us to the love of Calvary. This can happen. It has happened in the history of the church in America three major times in the past. In the great awakening of the colonial days with George Whitfield, John Wesley, and Jonathan Edwards. It happened again after the Revolutionary War in the Second Great Awakening as the gospel spread into the frontier and at camp meetings when thousands of people opened their hearts to the work of God. And it happened again after the Civil War as the Spirit of God descended upon the business communities of major metroplexes throughout our land. Cities like Chicago, New York, and Philadelphia shut down for prayer during the lunch break. Instead of power lunches, the layman's prayer revival generated power meetings. Maybe we are beginning to see the first signs of another spiritual awakening in our land. 
The Apostle Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 can certainly prepare the way.